Would you please join me as I pray? Our Father, we come to these moments together with anticipation, asking that you would, you would speak. We believe you to be the speaking God, and so we come to these moments, we actually set aside this time week after week after week and ask that you would dig us ears to hear because we want to be a people shaped by the living and the true words of our God. And I pray that as a result of our time together today, exploring and celebrating the resurrection, that we would be a people that rediscover our wonder, our awe. Teach us like children to experience the joy and the wonder of knowing that we have hope and that we have life. So Holy Spirit, would you come and communicate these truths to us, we ask even now, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. I wonder when it was in your life that you decided my childhood is over. You know that moment where you decide, okay, it's not quite what I thought it was, and I'm just going to have to bury that here and move on. I'm going to have to toughen up on the upper lip a little I'm going to have to live with the death of some dreams and some innocence because that season is over. Do you remember when it was? I think we all had a moment. It might be, it might be a harsh word in middle school. You know, it might be some moment where you go, oh, life is harder than I thought it was. The the freedom and the fun of childlike wonder. I I get the opportunity to hang out with kids a lot because I got three of them at my house. Their friends are over frequently. We had a gaggle of them looking for eggs in our backyard yesterday. There's few things that are as good for the soul as time with a four-year-old. A four-year-old that at the end of the day will say something like, this was the greatest day ever. I'm like, why is that? Well, I had a pancake today. I'm like, if that's all it takes, you know, I love that. There's a certain freedom of being four, of raising your hands over your head and like celebrating whatever that thing is with wonder and awe and freedom because childhood hasn't quite died yet and the cynic hasn't been born yet. But it might be, it might be divorce, it might be death, it might be a friend that you thought would always stand by your side that has proven otherwise. It might have happened when you were six and it might have happened when you were 26 But there's these moments where the child in us dies and the cynic is born. And in those moments, wonder starts to die. We we start to ask questions like the one Leo Tolstoy asked, is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me doesn't destroy? We start to wonder, what's it all for? If, If the end game is death and we return to the dust and this is all there is, we start wondering, well, gosh, Why would I, with hands raised, engage in wonder and awe? Isn't it all just coming undone? And you see, we're we're in the midst of a series that we're calling Skeptics Welcome, asking hard questions, believing that in the church and ultimately with God, we have a faithful conversation partner to ask the hard questions. So if you've come in today asking tough questions of God and of who he is, you are welcomed. In fact, you are our honored guest today. And the question that makes sense to ask on this Easter Sunday is, resurrection, really? (laughs) Bodily resurrection, is that what 
this community really believes and is pinning its hopes on. And quite frankly, let's just admit this together. This is the issue. It's not an issue in the life of the church. This is it. I would propose to my skeptical friends in the room that if this answer is no, if Jesus did not vacate a tomb, then this is all a waste of time. Paul says as much in 1 Corinthians 15, he says that if the resurrection, if the bodily resurrection of Jesus is not a reality, we of all people are to be pitied. We are foolish if this is not the case. Gerald O'Collins said it this way, Christianity without the resurrection is not simply Christianity without its final chapter. It is not Christianity at all. And so as we engage this question, is the resurrection real? I just wanna, I wanna help us understand that baked into that question on the front end is an invitation to rediscover our wonder and our awe. Like the places where the skeptic has been born and the child has died. The places where we've dealt with real grief and real sadness and we wonder what is it all worth? What does it all mean? If we can answer this question together today effectively and holistically. I don't believe that we just get an answer to the critical apologetic question for Christianity. I believe what we have the opportunity to do is rediscover wonder. Rediscover that that invitation to arms lifted high and go, ah, the best day ever. Like there's hope and there's life and there's celebration to be had even if my present circumstances are trying to convince me otherwise. This is the journey we're on. And in order to do it, I wanna track along behind the original eyewitnesses and I wanna engage in some of the same activities they engaged in. The first activity that if we are going to engage this question, is the resurrection real? And if we're going to go on the path to rediscovering wonder, the first thing we have to do is stare into the grief. Not sidestep it, not pretend it's not the case, not try to entertain and distract ourselves so that we pretend it's not a reality. We actually need to stare into it. And I believe that, in fact, these original eyewitnesses were prepared to do just that. Did you hear it at the start of, of Luke 24? It says it was the first day of the week at early dawn. They went to the tomb. And they were taking the spices that they had prepared. So this group of women are, are going to go to the tomb with the full expectation that what they're going to find is the dead body of the one that they had pinned their hopes on. And they're going to anoint his body with these spices that they have prepared. It says they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. And they were perplexed about this. This literally means they were at a loss. They had no idea what to make of that. And behold, two men stood by them in dazzling, dazzling apparel, and they were frightened, and they bowed their faces to the ground. The place where this story starts, exploring the resurrection and asking the, the hard questions of, what are we to make of this? It starts with a group of women that are will, willing to courageously stare into their own grief. I wonder in some ways what that Saturday was like, that Saturday night the long hours as they're waiting for the sun to come up, for Sabbath to be over, for them to be able to go and anoint the body of Jesus. It reminds me of that, that scene in Shawshank Redemption where Morgan Freeman's character is worried about his friend down the way. And he says, 
on long nights like this when all I'm left with is the darkness in my thoughts. Time draws out like a blade. (laughs) What a phrase. I think for these women throughout the night, they were going, will this ever end? Will it ever end? The grief and the darkness and my thoughts. These are women that had started to let themselves believe like children again. Maybe there is in fact hope. But now what they're having to encounter, what they're having to pay attention to is the profound grief The words that are used of them in the early verses, perplexed, they're at a loss. Even when these men show up, it says they're frightened and on their faces. That the emotions of this situation are grief and loss and confusion. And quite frankly, I think the good news that that Christianity has to offer to the world only makes sense in that context. Because incidentally, that is the context of reality. It's the context that every one of us is facing as human beings. And if we're not honest about that, this journey and this exploration of the nature of resurrection doesn't make sense. The context for resurrection is death and grief and sadness and disappointment. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ requires a really dark backdrop of bad news that things are coming undone. And these women, the first ones to discover the realities of bodily resurrection, were the most courageous in the bunch. They were willing to plunge into the grief and stare it in the eye. And I would just, I'd just ask you, what is it for you? Can Can we engage with that level of honesty on a day where the preacher man's wearing his suit and tie and we've got the pretty flowers and... Can we just be honest for a second? What is it? Friend, what was, what was done to you that gave birth to the cynic? What was it? Or maybe even more difficult to ask and answer, what, what have you done? What have you done to someone else? What have you done that you just wish, I just want to bury it and I never want to go back and look at it again? I want to pretend that I wasn't capable of that. What is it? Because the truth is the context by which resurrection hope breaks in, the context by which we rediscover wonder is by willing to plunge into the grief and stare it in the eye. And these women, they were the ones courageous enough to make the journey. They had stayed through the night and now they're coming at the break of dawn willing to deal with the places that are threatening hopelessness. And they stare into it. Listen, this I believe is why Jesus at the outset of the Sermon on the Mount said, blessed are the impoverished of spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Resurrection makes sense in the context of death. Wonder and awe only makes sense in the context of honest evaluation of the grief of living in a broken world the ways that it has been forced upon us and the ways that we have thrust it upon others. You see, the first step to rediscovering wonder and making sense of resurrection is that we have to stare into the grief, but that's not where it stopped. They didn't just stare into the grief, they then began to wrestle with their doubts. And I want you to hear what happens when these angels start to speak, both for these women and for the apostles that they run and speak to. Let's see together. In the second half of verse five, it says this. (laughs) I love this question. We good? I never know what's happening back here. 
Why do you seek the living among the dead? Ah, what a question. This is like that first question where a glimmer of maybe, just maybe, my grief isn't the end of the story. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful man and be crucified on the third day, be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. You see, the women hear this hopeful, angelic announcement. Remember, it had to be this way. There's almost this sense that it's like they're coming out of their grief dream. And he's going, do you remember? Jesus told you. He told you he was going to be handed over and he was going to be mistreated and killed and that it had to be that way because he had actually come from heaven to earth to absorb the judgment that was due to mankind. You remember, he told you it was going to happen this way. It had to. And it's almost like they're awaking from a bad dream and going, oh yeah, he did say that, didn't he? And as they're remembering, they run back and they announce it to the apostles. And there's part of me that is just hoping that certainly these apostles who've been with Jesus and who've heard these words, that this announcement coming from the angels through the women certainly will give birth to a community of faith. But that's not what happened, is it? What did this announcement give birth to? A community of doubt. Did you hear it? Listen to, you, listen to me, my, my skeptical friends, as we're preaching through this Skeptics Welcome series, in part, the reason that skeptics are welcome is because that's what God builds the church with. <laughs> that he actually, to the original apostles, it says when they heard this word, they said, it sounds like an idle tale. Dead people stay dead. Idle tale means it, it's, it's empty language. This, this actually means nothing. You're just, you're imagining things. Now, It's helpful to note that the original apostles were not just ready to rubber stamp a belief in the resurrection from the dead. They weren't just itching to go, oh yeah, we were were just expecting this. In fact, their immediate response is, no way, not possible. I think in some ways, if we're honest, they're in a place that many of us have been where it just feels too risky to hope again. Like once we stare into the grief and we start to pay attention to it, there's all of a sudden this sense of like that, that posture of a child, arms raised with hope and wonder, leaves lots of tender spots that get exposed. And all it takes is a few disappointing moments. A few moments where you get mistreated or undercut or the one that you loved and cherished is no longer here. And all of a sudden you go, I'm not letting myself go to that place again. And you get the sense that the apostles a few days in to tasting the depth of their grief, they go, thanks, but no thanks. Don't buy it. The original community that became the church was a community of doubt that didn't just take these claims at face value. But you know what I think is beginning to happen? They want it to be true. They want it to be true. I think Mary Magdalene and Joanna, when they come running in, Mary Magdalene, her story was that she was, 
She was full of demonic spirits and very likely was engaged in prostitution before meeting Jesus. She had been set free. And now that Jesus is maybe dead, but maybe alive, she's having to wrestle with like, am I really free? Am I free forever? Am I free in him? Or was that just like a hoax? Was that just, was that just limited? And all of a sudden she's going, is it true? And you get the sense that she's like on tiptoe going, I want it to be true. Joanna, her husband was the manager for Herod's household. She had been around money and power. She had been behind the scenes for all of those discussions. And for those of you in the room who've had that same opportunity, what you know is that when you're there, you realize it doesn't deliver on its promises. Joanna, no doubt, is wondering, (laughs) is there something more? I want it to be true. Because I've tasted all that this world has to offer and it doesn't satisfy. So you get a sense that she's on tiptoe going, I don't know if I fully believe, but I want it to be true. Or Peter, who in his last hours was displayed as a a coward who is willing to betray his closest friend. He's in the room hearing it and you get the sense that he's going, please tell me it's real. I want to be forgiven. I can't live with the weight of my disappointment and my disloyalty forever. And interestingly, as they're all leaning in, wanting it to be true, it's Peter who acts, as he often does. And I, and I just, even before we examine his action, I just, I just want to ask this question. Even this morning, if you, like the original apostles, hear this news and go, no way. Dead people stay dead. I'm too scientific. I'm too intelligent. I'm too informed. I would say, okay, but can we just together admit that we want this to be true? Like, don't, don't, we, don't we want hope beyond the grave? Maybe it's an idle tale. That's what the apostles think. But can we just admit together for a second, if it were true, everything would be different. Death no longer tells our story. Grief and loss and disappointment does not get the final chapter in your story. And not to mention that we have this deep desire to look at other people as valuable and made in the image of God. If Jesus is alive and the scriptures are true, we now have grounds, reason why we can look at other people and cherish them and value them. Reasons that we can have hope beyond the fact that someday our star is just going to burn out and everything's going to go cold. And whatever energy and effort we gave to making this world a better place was truly just a waste of time. If this is true, Our longing for justice, our longing for equality and beauty and truth, it makes sense because we are made for more than this little moment of a life. Don't you want it to be true? You get the sense that this community is a community of doubt, but they at least, they want it to be true. And then Peter, in staring into the grief and beginning to engage his doubts, He takes a third step, and this is the one I'd ask you to take with me before we're done this morning. He vigorously explores the hope. You almost get the sense that he's on tiptoe going, oh, please, if it could only be true, I'm going to do everything I can to determine if it is. And in verse 12, look, look at what he does in verse 12. There are seven verbs in this one verse. That's why I say vigorously explore the hope. It says this, but Peter rose and he ran to the tomb, stooping and looking. He saw the linen clothes by themselves. He went home marveling at what happened. He 
he runs and explores. He goes, okay, I want it to be true. I want to experience it. So he runs and he goes, I'm gonna handle it and touch it and I'm gonna look because I need to discover if this is in fact a reality because if it is, nothing will ever be the same ever. Now friends, it is true that we cannot run to the tomb today and look at the grave clothes of Jesus. But I just want to briefly, I wanna lay five things before you that I'm asking you to pick up and to handle, to think, to meditate on. Before we're done, what I want to say to you is this, that the grief is real, whether we're willing in a, in a setting like this to, to own the weight of it in the places where it, it put our childhood to death and it brought the cynic to life, it's real. We've all tasted it in different places. And if we're honest, the doubts are also real, but underneath the doubt, there's this longing, is it true? And what I want to invite you to do is just come and touch and handle and ask with me, could it possibly be true? Five simple facts that I want to lay before you and ask you to run to, stoop in, look at, handle with me. Quite frankly, it's considering things like this that have left me in a place where I just don't have enough faith to not believe in the resurrection. Very simply, the first is this. Would you consider for a moment the death of the disciples? That these 11 who were skeptical in the moment said it's an idle tale all but John, who was exiled to Patmos, they all died proclaiming Jesus as Lord. We know this historically. We know this extra biblically. We know that those that were closest to Jesus died proclaiming that we saw him alive. Now listen, how do we explain it? How do you explain? My rational, deeply thinking friends, I understand the concerns about a dead man coming to life. It doesn't make sense, but help me. How do we explain that? Were they hallucinating? Did they all get together and hatch the plan of like, hey, we're gonna start this movement. I know that we have no power and we have no platform and we're just fishermen that weren't really trained or educated, but I think that if we really just hold to this story that we can really start something big here. Is that what they were doing? When they're being threatened and crucified, run through and beheaded, is that, is that what they were doing? The death of all of the disciples, handle it, ask the question. Blaise Pascal, hundreds of years later, as a phenomenal thinker and mathematician said this, I believe the witnesses who got their throats cut. <laughs> Straight to the point. But quite frankly, so do I. Or secondly, what about the skeptics that were converted? Do you know who led the church in Jerusalem and who led the missionary efforts in the known world? James and Saul. Do you know their story? James was the brother of Jesus, and while Jesus was alive, what we know is this. He thought Jesus was insane. He was like, my brother. My brother says he's the Messiah. <laughs> Things are getting a little weird. He was like, we learned carpentry together with Joseph. Like, I don't know about his claims. Yet, he too was martyred in Jerusalem, proclaiming that Jesus was, in fact, Lord, leading the church in Jerusalem. When he wrote his letter in James 1, do you know how he introduced himself? He didn't say, I'm James the Just, which was his nickname given to him by others. He didn't say, I'm James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He didn't say, I'm James, brother of the Lord Jesus that slept on the straw mattress to him, next to him every night while he grew up. He didn't say that. You know what he said? James, slave to the Lord Jesus. <laughs> hmm. 
Saul, one of the most well-educated, brilliant young leaders that turned on a dime from killing and persecuting Christians to becoming the most faithful evangelist and church planter in the first century. What do we do with the fact that skeptics were radically converted? You see, James, the reason he became who he was, it says in 1 Corinthians 15, is Jesus made a special journey to his home in his resurrected body before he ascended to heaven. He went to James's house. Hey, man. James became, as he called it, a slave to the Lord Jesus because he realized he was in touch with the divine. Or three, what about the facts that Greeks and Jews changed their worldview overnight? Do you know that Greeks actually believed that the body was something to be shed? It was not desirable. It was like something that was changed, that when they died, they would finally be able to take off their chains. That was a Greek worldview that had been shaped for hundreds of years. And the Jewish worldview was that resurrection would come, but it would come at the end of life for all people when the world was renewed. So to say that one man was resurrected in the middle of time, the Greeks would go, why? Why would he want his body back? He's finally free of it. The Jews would say, not possible. Not until the end when everyone is raised up. Yet thousands of Greeks and Jews changed their worldview overnight with the birth of the church. That may not sound stunning to you, but I just want you to consider, consider you go home today and you turn on CNN and all the people that are the the political commentators, it's like Glenn Beck and Tucker Carlson and it's all the big Fox News stars and they're like, we are totally in on Joe Biden and Democratic platform. We would go, excuse me? What happened? Or if it went the other direction, we would be scratching our head. Listen, that is a drop in the bucket. This idea of like a Republican becoming a Democrat, a whole swath of them overnight, I can't imagine. Listen, that's nothing compared to people that have been shaped for hundreds of years. This is how they view the world and their identity and their hope. And overnight they go, whoops, we were wrong. How does that happen? You can't find another scenario like that historically. It happens sometimes over decades or over a generation, but not thousands overnight all saying, you know what, we view it completely differently. Fourth, very quickly, I'll hit these last two. The fact that the early church was built around communion and baptism. How weird, unless of course Jesus was resurrected. We know from extra biblical sources that from the very jump, this is what the community arranged themselves around. Can you imagine John F. Kennedy's family and friends all getting together regularly and rehearsing the way that he died? That would feel so gruesome and sad. Listen, his death was gruesome and public and sad, but nothing compared to the public, gruesome, sad nature of the death of Jesus. But they got together and they rehearsed it together over and over. Why? Because baked into it was hope and power because it wasn't the end of the story. They said, remember his body, remember his blood, who is like him. And then in baptism, they would say, buried with Christ, raised up to walk in newness of life. At the very central piece of this community that is being forged, they were rehearsing his death and his resurrection across the known world. Or lastly, the emergence and the growth of the church. Who would have guessed that this ragtag group was gonna outlive the Roman Empire, 
that in a matter of three centuries was going to go from a few people huddled and afraid and full of skepticism to tens of millions reshaping the known world. Listen, I just don't have enough faith to believe that Jesus stayed dead. Thomas Arnold, former chair of modern history at Oxford and the author of the history of Rome said this, I have been used for many years to study the histories of other times and to examine and weigh the evidence of those who have written about them. And I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which has proved by better and fuller evidence of every sort to the understanding of a fair inquirer than the great sign which God has given us that Christ died and rose again from the dead. Or Sir Lionel Lucku, brilliant lawyer who is famous for an international law for winning 240 consecutive murder acquittals. He said this, I say unequivocally that the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof, which leaves no room for doubt. That those that are, have done the work of examining the evidence were left going, well, if I'm going to be rational, it looks like maybe the very thing I was wishing was true is true. Quite frankly, I'll, I'll just leave you with this. There's evidence, and it's important to engage rationally. God takes the doubts of skeptics seriously, and he meets us in the midst of it. But I think the final thing that I place before you is the experiential test, as J.P. Moreland calls it. J.P. Moreland says this, if Jesus is alive... It's worthy to study the evidence. It's worthy to consider, is it rational? But listen, he's alive and he's willing to meet with you. What about the experiential test? Would you talk to him? Would you invite him in? The beauty is this. If we had time and energy and ability, we could parade across this stage millions and millions and millions of people with different languages and background from all across the globe that would say, I know the Lord Jesus. I meet with him and he's changing my life and he's available to you. You see, the evidence holds, but the great and the final test is the experiential test. Don't you want it to be true? Would you lean in and ask him like, oh, maybe wonder and awe is available. You see, the path to wonder and awe is from grief paying attention to it and not sidestepping it and not trying to entertain yourself out of it, but say, yes, living in a broken world, there is grief and I am contributing to it. But in the midst of that, to begin to, to wrestle with our doubts and to realize we wish it were true. And then to vigorously explore the hope with the ultimate exploration being of Jesus himself. Friend, he's available to you today. Invite him in. Ask him to do in you what he has done in countless numbers throughout the ages. And together we will rediscover our wonder. Like children with hope awakened and arms lifted high, we will say, ah, <laughs> there's more to the story. There's hope to be had. Let me pray for us. So gracious God and Father, we thank you that however we've considered our story to date, that with Jesus a part of it, it is not a tragedy, 
It's not ultimately a sad story. It's not ultimately a story of loss. Jesus, if the resurrection is true, as we invite you in, what it, what it guarantees is that ours is a story of hope and joy and life. Thank you for the work that you accomplished on the cross, paying for our sin, facing the grief on our behalf. We thank you that three days later you conquered death and that today you are seated on a throne willing to meet with us. We love you, we bless you, and we thank you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.